Back and be seated. If the, any babies need to go to the nursery, we can do that. <laughs> All right. All right. If you would take your Bibles today and make your way to Ephesians 5. I want to... I, I just put this title up there. Why God is not your grandpa. And, and, and I say that because I think sometimes we think God is like your grandfather. And grandfathers are great. I got to spend some time with Myra last night while her daddy was playing some music and singing at a coffee shop. And of course, she, she wanted to get out and run because that's what Myra does. And we all wanted to stay, but... Uh, you know, and Myra and I, we, we have a relationship that is entirely on her terms. <laughs> and if you know Myra, you understand exactly what I just said. And, but, but, you know, I'm not the brightest bulb in the chandelier, but occasionally I get an idea. She wanted out. No one wanted to take her. And I said, I wonder if I offered to take her for a walk, if she would go with Jaju. Well, she became Jaju's best friend. And so, so we went for a walk, but the problem with going for a walk with Myra is it's not enough. That walk turned into a run. We had to run. And now you can look at me and tell that I am very much against running. I, I believe there is no need to run unless something larger and fiercer is chasing you and you don't have a firearm. And, and those two things never happen to me. I always carry, and rarely does something ch chase me that is larger than me. But Myra wanted to run, so being a good grandfather, we ran. And downtown Perry is great because they got these cool little city blocks. We ran all the way around the block, and then she said those words I was dreading. I was afraid she might say, and what do you think that was? Do it again. And I said, only if you show me your CPR certification card. <laughs> I want to know that you can at least jump up and down on my chest and bring me back to life because we go around that block again. It's over. What do we love about, why do, what do grandparents love about kids and grandchildren love about grandparents? We're not the disciplinarian. That's pretty much the gist of the relationship. The beauty of being a grandparent is you can love on that baby you can enjoy them and play with them and you can sugar them up and then send them home. You don't have to stay up at night with them. You don't have to change diapers. Well, I think my wife's changed some diapers, haven't you? But, but it's still not the same. You don't have to change every diaper. Um, and you don't have to put up with a fussy baby all the time. And the little time that you do, it's okay because they're going home. It's a beautiful thing. And what makes grandparenting so wonderful is that you're not responsible for the constant discipline of that child. Someone once said that grandchildren are God's reward for not killing your teenagers. And I believe it. But here's the deal. God is not your grandpa. Matter of fact, someone once wisely said that God has no grandchildren, only children. You're either his son or daughter, or you're his enemy. I want to be very clear with that. You're either his son, you're either his daughter, you're his child, or you're his enemy. And there is no slushy middle ground. 
Does that make sense? So you're in Ephesians 5, right? Our text verse, just to let you know, is really just 5 and 6. But you know me. I've got to read the whole thing. I gotta give you, I've got to give you the context of it. So let me do that. Uh, and we'll go right back to verse 1. In verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. And then he says, here's what that looks like. Walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Okay, so he gives us what it looks like to walk in love and to be an imitator of God. He said, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, and if you've got your own Bible, you should underline this next phrase, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Now this, here's our, here's our, our, our text begins. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then he follows it up by saying, and don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. In other words, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Why? This is so vital, church. For because of these things, those things he just listed, right? The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, because that's true, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are what? Light in the Lord. And then Paul says, so walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable in the Lord. And have how much fellowship, church? No fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. All right. So, I think that goes back to our question. Is God like your grandfather? And is he going to overlook your sin and your idolatry? Well, I, I, you can really shorten the answer down to one two-letter word. No. 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 But what I want to unpack with you today is why. Why is it that God can't overlook our sin and allow our disobedience and our idolatry to go unpunished. Let me give you one more example in Scripture. You might want to jot this down. This is found in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. If you'll just turn right a little bit in your Bibles. Actually, that would be left, wouldn't it? It's before Ephesians. If you go left a little bit, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, here's what it says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, let's stop right there. Are you all catching a pattern here? Okay, so this thing called the kingdom of God apparently only belongs to those who are categorized by this word righteous. Okay? And if you're characterized by this word unrighteous or not righteous, 
the kingdom is not for you. One commentator I read, I really like what he said. He said, the reason being is the unrighteous would not be happy in the kingdom. They would not be fulfilled, and they would just be miserable in the kingdom of righteousness. That kind of made sense to me. So it says, the unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And I just, I just have a question for you. Could God be any clearer? I mean, what, how else do you say that? I also have another question for you. Is what was just said politically correct? No. And we're living in a world that is beginning to legislate, even in our country, California. It's got legislation in the books right now that's going to make that statement illegal. That the scripture is going to ultimately, and we are, we are, we're not, it's not coming, we are there. When the reality of the truth calling a sin what it is, sin, is now a crime punishable uh, with the law, with a fine and even jail time. We're here. But you know what? I don't care what people say. God is not sweating it in heaven. He has said what he said. And sin and idolatry cannot go unpunished. God has to punish it. Now, this is interesting. Let's see if you don't agree with me. And you don't have to agree with me. You have the right to be wrong. <clears throat> Isn't it funny, or at least interesting, how we are all about justice? There is something that just doesn't sit right with us when somebody perpetrates a crime and gets away with it. It's not right. You know, this week I had the unfortunate task of doing the funeral for a little girl who grew up across the street from us. You all, some of you have been here long enough, remember Deja. Just a, she was just a happy kid. Um, always had a smile on her face, just joyful, 21 years old, and she was murdered a week and a half ago here in Macon. Wrong place, wrong time. And she was, she was shot and killed. And one of the things, that, and, and the community there is just, they're both grieving and they're angry, and I get it. And, and, and I'm, I'm with them. But one of the things I said to them is, I reminded them what the scriptures say. That vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. That, that, that it's not our job to make those who did this pay. It's God's job. And he's got, he's got order in which to do that. That's what the police are for. The law. The government. And it, it, but we want justice. And that's one of the things I stood up there and said to this crowd who was just grieving so deeply. And I was right there with them. I want the people who did that to this beautiful young lady to be brought to justice. And if they discovered beyond a shadow of a doubt who it was, and then said, you know what? Don't do it again and let them go. How would that sit with us? Right? We are not okay with that. Why are we not okay with that? 
It's not justice. Right? It's, we would just say, even a little kid would say, it's not right. Now let me bring that down to something that's maybe more in our, our experiential wheel, wheelhouse. How many of you have children? How many of you have more than one child? Okay, so stuff happens when you have more than one child in a family. Yeah, <laughs> thank you, Willie. <laughs> yeah, it does. You know, one of the kids is going to do something against another one of the children, right? Now, when I was growing up, it was always the rest of them doing it against me. Isn't that right, Mother? No, Oh, okay. She said no. Pray for her. <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're going to do things. And, 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 and when they do, they're going to come and tell you. Has that ever happened to anybody here? <laughs> Elizabeth? Yeah. What's that, constantly? Right. And there's a fine line, isn't there? Between tattling and between letting the parents know something that's going on because it can affect both the harmony and the safety of the family. Right? Um, and I thought Elizabeth has kind of a, a principle that she goes by, and I like it. And she says, okay, you can bring this to me, but if I get involved, you need to understand nobody wins. <laughs> right? You, go ahead, feel free to tattle and bring it to me, but know that when I'm in this thing, nobody wins. If, if, you, can't, if you refuse to work it out amongst yourselves, I'll come in, but nobody's going to be happy when this is over. And that, that, that goes a long way to, 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 to cut back on the tattling, especially as they get older. But here's the deal. Normally, normally, would you not agree with me? Elvis and Marvelous, you have little children. Normally, these types of squabbles have to do, fall into two areas, personal property and personal offense, right? She took my stuff, he hit me. Normally, in that order. <laughs> yeah, she, took, she took my car, I hit her. <laughs> And then what, what, what we usually do with that is, okay, punishment's been rendered. What do you got me involved with this for? You took matters in your own hands. What do you want me to do? You're both wrong. And so what we try to teach our children is, he takes my car before you hit her, come to me, and then I can do the disciplining. But if you want to take matters in your own hands, that's on you. Here's my question to you. Why does that little kid respond? Why does that, why does that sibling who has been wronged innately meet out their own punishment to the offending criminal in the family that happens to be related to them. What is it? It's justice. They know, we know almost coming out of the womb that we have this, albeit perverted, sense of justice, don't we? We know that when someone does wrong to us, wrong should be repaid back to them. Or at least that which is wrong needs to be made right. Are we clear? Why is it, church, that we can understand it when it comes to our kids, but think that when it comes to the creator of the universe, who has offered to also be our redeemer, that somehow God should overlook this when your two-year-old knows better? I think that's a fair question. I think we're being very inconsistent. When we expect God to be okay with our sin, 
when a two-year-old knows there's something wrong with that. Now, all sin must be punished in order for there to be justice. And not to get into open this can of worms with children and parenting, but there are things, if, that, if, if something belongs to that child, we want them to share, but to make them share is abrogating a law that God put in place, the law of personal property. We need to, we need to become wise as parents and understand and see the larger picture and also understand the fallenness of our own children. So that's just a side thing. That's free. Maybe that's for a parenting sermon one day, but maybe we need to hear that as well. Okay, so, so children understand it, but as adults, we expect God to handle things differently. Here is something that we've got to understand too, and it is simply this, and I think this helps us a little bit with it. All sin... The taking of the toy, the hitting of the sibling, to the, to the illegal taking of human life. So we got this big spectrum, right? All sin is primarily, and by primarily I mean first, in the first place, against who? God. Don't ever forget that. Your sin, even though you might hit your sibling, and you sinned against your sibling, but before you can ever sin against your sibling, that sin is primarily a sin between you and God. You have sinned against God because you have not valued, you have not loved your sibling. And Jesus said the law is fulfilled by loving God and loving your neighbor. And your sibling is your closest neighbor. You've broken God's law first before you ever hurt another human being. David said in Psalm 51, Verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now the sin he's talking about was sleeping with someone who wasn't his wife, her getting pregnant, and him basically putting out a hit order on her husband so that he would be killed in battle, one of his best warriors, so he could cover the whole thing up. We call it Bathsheba Gate. In scripture. David gets caught. It's interesting to me that it's a while until he gets caught. Because the whole thing looks like it works. He makes, he makes sure that Bathsheba's husband Uriah is killed in enough time so that she can mourn him and then come into his harem as his wife and deliver this baby and, and nobody's the wiser except Bathsheba and he. But you know what? The old statement has said, you know, when someone goes to seal something, they look left and they look right, but they never look up. Because God sees everything, doesn't he? So David lives in his unconfessed sin for a good period of time until Nathan the prophet comes and tells him a story. And you remember that story? He says, yeah, this, this poor man and his family lived next to a wealthy man who had much herds and goods Wealth in David's day was agricultural. It was mostly measured in land and what you have on that land in the, in, in, in the form of, of, of both fields and animals. So this guy's got tons of sheep, but the poor guy that lives next to them, they only have one little lamb, and it's not, it's, it's a pet. 
It's like, a, it's like the family dog. It comes in at night, sleeps with the kids. It's a pet. The rich guy has a buddy show up to visit and literally goes next door, snatches the neighbor's lamb out of the bed with the kids, cuts his throat, dresses it, cooks it, and feeds it to his buddy. When he's got hundreds of lambs in his own field, David flies off the throne. He says, as surely as I live, that man will die. Now, you could go back and look at the law of that day. And the law of that day is very clear. That was a crime. It was not a capital crime. It was not a crime that called for the death of the perpetrator. That He would have to restore tenfold and there would be some monetary things on top of that. But that was it. It was not a death penalty offense. The guy's a jerk, but, but he's not a, he's not, he did not take human life. But David says, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to tell you what, that guy is going to die for what he did. And that old prophet sticks his bony finger in David's self-righteous face. He said, you're the guy. Now, that's a dangerous thing for that prophet to do because David has ultimate authority. He already killed one man to cover this up. What's the big deal of killing a second? But instead, David gets it. He's tired of living with secret sin. That sin is wearing on him. He writes about that in Psalm 51. How miserable he was hiding his sin. Couldn't sleep. Life just was terrible. He, was, he, he wanted to repent. He just didn't know how. And that old prophet gave him the window he needed to repent. And then he says these words in his repentance song. He said, God, against you and you only have I sinned. And I know the first time I read that, I'm thinking, well, okay, there's Bathsheba. There's definitely Uriah, who you put a hit out on. That wasn't very nice. Um, you sinned against a bunch of people, not just God. But what David was saying is, primarily, I broke your law, and at the end of the day, that's what matters. Every sin is a sin against the holy God who created you and therefore has the responsibility and the right to tell you what is right and what is wrong. And when we do what is wrong, we cannot expect that wrong to go unpunished. Randy Alcorn said this, and I so appreciate it. He said, any concept of grace that makes us feel more comfortable sinning is not biblical grace. God's grace never encourages us to live in sin. On the contrary, it empowers us to say no to sin and yes to truth. Isn't that good? G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said, men do not differ much about what they call evils. They differ enormously about what evils they will call excusable. And that's something. Leonard Ravenhill put it this way. He said, the world has lost its power to blush over its vice. The church has lost her power to weep over it. 
How many of you are old enough to remember the days when men wept over their personal sin? I know I fear our children. I look around at these kids. I fear our children are growing up in a day when they've never seen adults broken over their sin. Have your children ever seen you weep over your own sin? And then we wonder why the, the, the ensuing generations care less and less about that which is evil in the eyes of a holy God. Because they've had no modeling of true, heartfelt, biblical repentance from those who raised them. It's not popular preaching. Matter of fact, you're taught in seminaries today to stay away from texts like this because it won't build the church. It won't draw the crowd. But I go back to what John MacArthur said one, one time. I heard him live early in my ministry. And he said this, Soft preaching will make hard Christians. And hard preaching will make soft-hearted Christians. Isn't that true? You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. And I close with this quote from St. Charles Borromeo, one of the early church fathers. He said this, Behold Jesus Christ crucified, who is the only foundation of our hope. He is our mediator and advocate. And I love this phrase, the victim and sacrifice for our sins. He is goodness and patience itself. He is, his mercy is moved by the tears of sinners. And He never refuses pardon and grace to those who ask it with a truly contrite and humbled heart. And then Charles Spurgeon said this. You see his picture on the screen. He said, not to punish the guilty were to exact the penalty of suffering from the innocent. Think what an injury and injustice would be inflicted upon all the honest men in London if thieves were never punished for their roguery. It would be making the innocent suffer if you allowed the guilty to escape. God, therefore, not out of arbitrary choice, but from the very necessity of rightness, must punish us for having done wrong. Is, is that unfair? Is it righteous that God must and will punish all breaking of His law, all ignoring of Himself, all ordaining and organizing one's life as if God did not exist? That is not wrong. It would be wrong for God not to punish this. Were God to overlook your sin, He would have to reject His identity as God. He cannot. He will not. He must not. All sin, all idolatry must and will be punished in this life and in the life 
to come. And if we end the service there, as Paul the Apostle said, we are of all men most miserable. And I submit to you today that the elements on this table represent the justice of God. You want to know what God thinks of your sin? You want to know God's stance? against every sin and all sin? You want to know how horrendous it is to break the law of the God who made you? You need only look to one place, and that is the cross of Calvary. I told that group of weeping and mourning friends and family two days ago, I said, I know you're angry that this beautiful young woman's life was snuffed out and that she was innocent and deserved not to die that way on that street. And I join you in praying for justice. But there's only one way to end this violence that has plagued our city. And it was interesting because there were four investigators sitting on the back row. And they were there checking out the crowd because they're investigating this murder. I said, there's only one way to stop the killing in Macon. And they all kind of perked up and paid attention. I said, there's only one way to stop this violence, and it's with a greater violence. And they kind of looked at each other in the back row. And I said, the only violence that will stop this type of insane violence from plaguing our streets and our community is the violence that took place on a hill outside of the gates of Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago. The violence of the cross snuffs out the violence in the human heart. And the cross is the only answer. If we want to have peace flow in our streets. And I quoted from Isaiah 50 in verse 18 that said one day God would make of Jerusalem. He would cause the violence to cease and her walls would be called salvation and her gates praise. And I said I pray for that day in Macon. But the only way that's going to happen is when we, we destroy and put an end to this violence with the greatest violence that ever took place in human history and that is on the cross of Calvary. And these elements represent the body and the blood of he who knew no sin. And done to him was the violence that is due every one of us whenever we break that law of God. Can God forgive? Can God let go of everything that we have done? He Will not, cannot, and must not. But Jesus endured it in your place. I want you to think about that. I want you to ponder that today as these elements come around to you. Don't just see a, a cracker and some, some grape juice. Understand what those things represent. That everything you have done and I have done as an offense to this holy, wonderful, righteous God that very God poured out on His Son in our place. What a God. And what a Savior. And may we never forget.
I think we need to ponder the, the weight of all of this. The Bible says that we should examine ourselves before we take the bread and the cup. Let's do that. Let's take a moment of this quiet prayer. Do you understand what has been said today?